CBS presents this program in color. Last week, as you recall, we left our space family just as they made their escape from the deadly world of the robots. All were unaware that even now, a terrifying engine of destruction was bearing down on them at incredible speed. Don, check that radar scope. There's something on it. Yeah, I see it. Well, that large glow is the planet we just left, but I can't figure out the other. Look out here! It's coming directly after us! moving up on us fast. Warning! Extreme danger! What is it? Object pursuing us is a hyperatomic missile. A hyperatomic missile? Where did it come from? It has been launched by the automated planet in protest to our leaving. Advise a change of course immediately. If not, we will be destroyed. <laughs> Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, to Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 33rd broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled Forbidden World. <laughs> and Kurt, we've mentioned before how Erwin Allen liked to have his secretary change the writer's titles for episodes of Lost in Space. And you know, this is one time I wish I'd had that job because I'd have called it Blasted Out of Space. <laughs> I hate to start off on a down note, but I'm already disappointed by how little time We'll spend Lost in Space in Season 2 with emphasis on space. What about you? Any substitute titles for this one come to mind? Well, uh, how about the duck monster that laid an egg? (laughs) 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 Well, you asked, so I told. Yeah, there we go. Hmm. Well, a few production notes before we begin with the story. 43-year-old Barney Slater is back with his first episode for Season 2. We gave him the award for Best Screenwriter of Season 1, rounding out the list of his excellent scripts with the season finale, Follow the Leader. This script, originally titled The New Planet, plays like a tale of two stories. The first half rests on exciting action, impressive visuals, and nicely distributed work for the entire cast. The second half is dominated by Smith, Will, and the Robot, and features a heavy dose of comedy. Some of it quite entertaining, but some that bleeds into outright silliness. It's probably not fair to suggest that Slater was losing his touch. 
Rather, he was probably just giving his boss, Erwin Allen, what he wanted. And Erwin was giving the network and the viewers what they clearly wanted. When the numbers came back from Nielsen for Forbidden World, it beat Batman from 7 to 7.30 and hit number one in the ratings from 7.30 to 8. And who can argue with that? What's more, Lost in Space had now regained the crown as the top-rated sci-fi show on TV, finally topping Star Trek just five weeks after that show had debuted. Forbidden World might have drawn giggles from hardcore sci-fi fans, but Uncle Irwin was laughing all the way to the bank. Oh, wow. It's hard to imagine that Lost in Space fans of the second season preferred the campy comedy over the more serious season one. I guess old P.T. Barnum was right when he said, you'll never go broke underestimating the intelligence of the American people. Boy. Yeah. I guess it was just what was in fashion right then. I don't know. Hmm. Well, you know what? Maybe, you know, there's a lot of kids who are watching both series, Star Trek and Lost in Space. And as a parent, I could see a lot of parents saying, nope, we're not going to watch Star Trek. We're going to watch Lost in Space because Lost in Space was so less, you know, frightening and less serious. So they might have felt like that was, you know, better for the kids. So maybe the CBS censor it till it hurts strategy was working. I don't know, but I can't explain it otherwise. Yeah. Well, the time slot had a lot to do with it, too. You know, it was on earlier. I think Star Trek came on at like 830 or 9, you know. Uh Okay. You know, they probably still had a lot of kids watching at that time, but... Just a guess. Mm, yeah. Well, Don Richardson returns for his second effort this season. The 48-year-old director went a little long last time for Wild Adventure, partially due to all the stunt work and special effects setups required for that episode. But he did manage to get this one in the can within the budgeted six-day shooting schedule, filming from the 20th through the 27th of July, 1966. As we all know, staying on time saved Irwin money, which meant plenty more work for Richardson on Lost in Space. And if you don't do it, it means plenty more the opposite. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You wake up with that decapitated horse head in your bed, yeah. Exactly. Well, this episode aired Wednesday night, October 5th, 1966, and it got a summer repeat on May 24th, 1967. All of our regular characters are featured in this one, and guest starring in the role of Tiabo, the space hermit, was two-time Emmy nominee Wally Cox. By 1966, the 41-year-old Cox was well-known to TV audiences, having previously starred in two series of his own, the most successful being Mr. Peepers, which ran from 1952 till 1955. By the time he appeared on Lost in Space, he was a fixture on the guest star circuit, and also a regular on the popular game show Hollywood Squares. What about uh, Underdog? Where does that fit in? Well, yes. Good question. He was also the voice for the mild-mannered cartoon superhero from 1964 to 1967. Hmm. Cox's humorous version of Tiabo plays like, well, like Wally Cox. But interestingly, he was not on the original list of actors considered for the part. Some who were considered included Roger C. Carmel, who later played Harry Mudd on Star Trek, and John Astin, who'd starred as Gomez Adams on The Adams Family. Those names and the others considered underscore the fact that this role was intended to be a comedy vehicle from the start. You know, sometimes it's fun to play the what-if game with these casting decisions, 
But with this role, I'm not sure it would have made much difference in the end, Kurt. Yeah, you know, it's like the old expression, you could put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not bad. I mean, it's a good pig. But it's just, you know, it's a little bit of a stinker as far as the uh, high suspense and thrills department is concerned. Mm. Well, speaking of that, the giant bird monster, as it's called in the script, was designed and worn by Janos Prohashka, who'd played the giant version of Debbie in last season's The Oasis. In the script, Tiabo's monster was described as ominous and threatening looking, but a note from CBS expressing concern that color film might make the monster too gruesome for younger viewers, resulted in the wacky, overgrown dodo bird character we got here. Oh, wait wait a second. I think you just mispronounced that. You may want to stop and retake. I, I saw the creature, and I'm pretty sure it's pronounced doo-doo bird. <laughs> <laughs> just saying. Yeah. Well, Prohashka's creation had previously appeared on an Outer Limits episode titled The Duplicate Man. And it would later show up in two installments of Bewitched. Now, Kurt, you're our resident Outer Limits expert. Was that creature supposed to be scary in Outer Limits? Because it was all slapstick in Bewitched. Uh, well, it was supposed to be scary, but, you know, it still kind of failed in that department. But in the script, in the original story, that creature is a psychopathic murdering monster. Uh, in the episode, it could speak English, but in the in the original script, it's actually telepathic, too. So, yeah, it's supposed to be a serious threat, but it, it didn't impress me in that particular episode either. Now, here's another interesting trivia alert. That same costume appeared briefly in the original Star Trek pilot, The Cage. Just oh, briefly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Was it one of the prisoners that the uh, Talusians had? It? Yes, exactly. Ah, Okay. Yeah, you only got a glimpse of him, I think. Mm -hmm. That's pretty funny. I think they knew. <laughs> <laughs> just show the hands and feet. We'll leave it at that. Yeah, they say, I think we're just going to put this back in storage and let Irwin use this one. <laughs> yeah. Well, it brings up another question I just thought of. I, I haven't seen all the episodes. Were there any Outer Limits episodes that were intentionally humorous, or were they all supposed to be serious? Uh they had some that were uh, had some humor in it. Like they had one that involved I can't remember the name of the actor who played the telepathic leader on Space Nineteen Ninety Nine. He was also in The Fugitive, and he was very famous. He was kind of bald. You remember oh, he, Barry, he was Barry Morse. That's uh, him. Yep, he was in an episode with Archie Bunker, Carol O'Connor. Oh, <laughs> and they had this device that can fast forward and reverse time, and so you see all this, you know, fast forward and backwards stuff that was kind of played for humor. Okay, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, in addition to a good deal of the tracked John Williams music from season one, this episode also featured a new score, the first of four by veteran composer Robert Drazenen. Drazen was a busy man during this era of TV, writing original music for other shows like The Twilight Zone, The Wild Wild West, The Man from Uncle, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, and Time Tunnel. Despite the tone of this episode, Many of his Forbidden World cues were actually quite eerie and atmospheric. One notable exception is what fans refer to as the Clippity-Clop Wee finale cue titled Spacewalk. This comedic act-out piece, complete with the slide-whistle coda, would become the go-to lighthearted ending cue for many future episodes of Lost in Space. Another sign of the times, Kurt. Uh, I guess we should be thankful that they at least spared us the muted trumpet. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. 
This just occurred to me again as we're talking here. You know, we spent a good deal of the last episode kind of dogging George Lucas about borrowing so many things from Lost in Space. There's mm-hmm. another example of something he got from Lost in Space, the composer of the soundtrack, John Williams. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing. Shameless. <laughs> uh, the Star Wars fans are turning <laughs> off right now. <laughs> He should have started his own hashtag Me Too movement. Uh, <laughs> it was just like everything that Erwin did. Me too, me too. Well, with that, let's get on with the story. The Act One teaser starts out with a shot of the Jupiter 2, serenely gliding away from the deadly world of the robots. But inside the ship, our space family is blissfully unaware that even now, a terrifying engine of destruction was bearing down on them at incredible speed. Just then, Marine arrives on the flight deck and cheerfully announces that she has a nice dinner in the oven. Everyone's all smiles as the men indulge in a little wishful thinking over what's on the menu. Everyone except Dr. Smith, that is who brings the mood down by pouring scorn on Major West's unimaginative choices. But just then, our cocky connoisseur's culinary lecture is cut short when the professor notices something strange on the cosmic sensor scope. Don may not have much imagination when it comes to food, but he must be some kind of creative genius with swirling mori patterns. Because looking at the scope, not only can he see the planet they just left, but the other object John is talking about as well. That's when B-9 warns our castaways that they're in extreme danger from a sinister hyperatomic missile launched from the malevolent automated planet. Uh Uh-oh. Dr. Smith goes into full meltdown mode as we're shown the menacing mechanism relentlessly bearing down on the ship through the porthole. Unfortunately, even with Don's dazzling evasive flight maneuvers, realized by more of L.B. Abbott's team of special effects wizards, they can't shake the missile. Yeah, that was a good effect, but when John announces that the missile must have a homing device, Marine asks if there's any chance of escape, and Smith answers, How can we have a chance, madam? It's a machine! How can you outsmart a machine? Now, they've just waltzed out of a planet of those hapless machines. If this missile is any relationship to those keystone cogs, they should have no problem whatsoever. But, you know, it still has a lot of suspense. Yeah. It does. I love that. <laughs> I love that missile. <laughs> It does. It looks cool. And it looks very Flash Gordon-esque. It really does. And it it does some dazzling flight maneuvers itself, but that's pretty funny. It might have a homing device. Yes. You think? The only thing it didn't have that would have been even more retro, if it would have left like a a smoke plume that would go up, you know. I always loved how they do that in this whole movie. Not only is there space smoke, but it has gravity. It goes upward. (laughs) That's great. Well, following John's plan B, the Major dives the spaceship at full power directly toward a nearby planet that Professor Robinson conveniently spotted in Sector 630. Wow, that was lucky. Mm -hmm. 
Estimated time of contact, one minute, 36 seconds. As the robot doggedly counts down the seconds until the missile's impact, we're shown a familiar-looking blue planet looming ever larger through the main viewport. Time of missile impact, 42 seconds. We're doomed beyond any hope ahead. Don Wordley warns he's got to pull up now or it'll be too late. But with everyone else sweating bullets, the professor firmly tells the major to take it easy and wait just a few more seconds. Time of missile impact, 22 seconds. While you're all hanging breathlessly in suspense, let me drag out just a little longer by pointing out that this nearby planet, this is in air quotes, looks identical to the planet we just left. In fact, it is the same planet, painted the same exact colors with the same exact patterns, just rotated a few degrees to make it little, uh, just a little less obvious. Now, for a model, it does look damn good. But you got to ask yourself, why didn't they paint the other side of it a completely different design? <laughs> Flip it around to that side so it wasn't so obviously the same prop. This is season two, dudes. Change things up. Wow. Oh, that's so funny. It yeah. was actually confusing the first time I saw it. It's like, why are they going back? Yeah, it was. I thought it was the same planet, literally. But whatever. It was, literally. But figuratively, it wasn't supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it was confusing at first. It, it's the exact same, <laughs> same image. Yeah. But I liked it. I mean, it's cool because you can tell, you know, this is not CGI. This is right. a real yeah. thing. Exactly. exactly. This is old school. Yeah. Time of missile impact with spaceship, 17 seconds. Well, finally, with the missile almost on them, and the new planet completely filling the viewport. Time of missile impact, five seconds. Professor Robinson shouts for Major West to pull up, which causes the missile to miss the Jupiter 2. And instead, zoom headlong toward an explosive impact with the surface below. Evasive action successful. Missile now headed for impact on planet. Professor Robinson orders our castaways to hold on and ride out the imminent shockwave standing up. When the missile explodes, we're shown the Jupiter-2 being violently buffeted by powerful blasts from the weapon's detonation. Thankfully, everyone emerges shaken up, but all right. Unfortunately, the same can't be said for the Jupiter-2. Because now, a frustrated Major West announces their navigational system isn't responding. Uh-oh. Whatever that means, it's your responsibility, Major. <laughs> Tuning Smith out, Don grimly reports that the ship's been damaged by the concussion from the explosion. With the Jupiter-2 now caught in the planet's gravitational pull and rapidly losing altitude, John calls for all the power they've got. But Major West barks back, he can't. Not without their navigational system. Uh-oh. What now? 
flipping out, Dr. Smith jumps in and foolishly flips yet another random switch on the control panel. Immediately burning out their power cells and sending the Jupiter 2 spiraling down for a crash landing. Oh dear. Oh, correction. That was no random switch. That was Smith's go-to switch to ignite sparks and send the Jupiter 2 into a nosedive. He knows that switch by heart. (laughs) Oh, that's the truth. But, you know, I was really hoping that Don would just take these last few moments of life before they all died to remind everyone that just two episodes ago, he was the only one who voted to leave Smith out in space. Well, dropping fast and only 10 miles from touchdown, there's no time for Marine to get the children strapped in below. So the professor directs them to take crash positions on the floor. And while Dr. Smith assumes the fetal position next to Penny, Major West bravely volunteers to man the astrogator and fire the retro rockets right before they hit. The professor balks. It'll overload their circuits. But the Major insists they've got to risk it. Then he pulls rank, ordering John to assume the position with the others on the floor. Wishing Don good luck, the professor follows orders and joins the rest of the family. Then, with mere seconds before impact, Major West shouts, Here we go! And fires all thrusters. But just as Professor Know-It-All predicted, the action blows out the ship's controls. And the resulting flash powder explosion sends our plucky pilot careening across the flight deck, head first into the rear bulkhead. Ouch, that's gotta hurt. Just before we go to opening credits, we cut back outside, where we're treated to another cool special effects sequence. This time, it's the color version of B-roll footage shot for the unaired pilot, showing the Jupiter 2 streaking over the Trona Pentacles and hurtling down for a very rough landing indeed. You know, Kurt, I love those iconic crash scenes with the special effect shots, especially in color. But when they cut back inside and we're looking through the viewport at that very familiar terrain they're flying over, I could swear I heard Dr. Smith wailing, Oh no, we're back on pre-planus. The pain, the pain. Oh yeah, yeah. Those iconic rock towers, they're hard to disguise as any other planet other than Mm pre-planus, with or without color. But what I find even funnier is that Don always abandons his pilot post to crash land the ship. The first time he froze himself in the freeze tubes just before landing. (laughs) Then last time, the robots landed the ship in darkness. This time, Don monkeys around with the astrogator and then dives on the floor just when the ship starts flying between those rock columns and needs a pilot the most. You know, you're the pilot. You tell me, isn't steering the vehicle part of the job? I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, it's funny because Mark Goddard would joke that he earned the nickname Crash. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe even better nickname would have been Blindfold because that guy never saw a landing in the whole series as far as I can recall. (laughs) Not one that he guided at any rate. That's true. 
Well, as the Jupiter 2 disappears behind a rocky alien hillside, we hear what sounds like a five-car pileup on the Pasadena freeway. Uh-oh. Something tells me that's going to leave a scratch. But we'll have to wait until after the break to see if our castaways have survived their unscheduled landing on this forbidden world. Hi, this is Jeff Bond, author of The Fantasy Worlds of Irwin Allen, and you're listening to the Alpha Control Podcast with Lane and Kurt. When we return from the break, things look pretty bleak inside the badly banged up Jupiter 2. Most of the equipment on the flight deck has been knocked asunder and is still smoking. The good news is it gave Will another chance to play with the fire extinguishers, though. I love that. As our space pioneers put out the fires and dust themselves off, Don appears to be badly banged up himself. Don! Which sends Judy into a state of near panic. (laughs) Fortunately, the Major quickly comes around and rushes to help Professor Robinson assess their dismal situation. And Dismal doesn't begin to describe Dr. Smith's morale, especially when he's informed that it'll take weeks to repair the ship. Furthermore, they appear to have landed in a fogged-out valley. Oh, dear. Stranded on another bleak and alien planet. Oh, lovely. Absolutely lovely. Well, we've got plenty of work ahead of us. Work? What an unpleasant word. Uh, May I make a suggestion? Before we start our labors, shouldn't we go out and have a look at our new and hopefully temporary home? That wouldn't be a very good idea, Smith. And why not? I want to check the atmospheric conditions first. Uh, Supposing that fog out there is poisonous, or there isn't enough oxygen? We could send the robot out. No good. A fog that dense could be corrosive to metal. I see. And how long will your test take, may I ask? About three or four hours. Three or four hours? You mean to say we have to remain cooped up in this damaged hulk all that time? For once, just for once, try to be sensible, Smith. We can't go rushing blindly into the unknown. Inside the Jupiter 2, we're safe. And no one goes outside until I'm sure the same conditions prevail. Surely that doesn't apply to me. We've got enough problems, Smith, without you stumbling around in some unexplored planet. Don't forget, Major. Every man is the master of his own fate and the captain of his own soul. You may be the captain of your soul, Smith. But I happen to be the captain of this ship, and no one goes outside. And that outranks you, Smith. As you wish, Professor. I shall concede only because dinner, such as it is, is imminent. Smith heads down to the galley, but pauses to take out his frustration on his old punching bag, B-9. I outrank you, sir, and don't you forget it. Shaking their heads as Smith descends below deck, the men observe... This may be a new planet, but they've still got the same old Smith. Kurt, did you buy John's reasoning for not sending the robot outside to test the atmosphere? I mean, he is an environmental control robot, after all. Or was this just some kind of plot device? 
Well, it seemed more than a little odd. I mean, that's like not wanting to drive your car because you're afraid it will wear out the tires. I mean, that's the whole <laughs> point of a car, to drive it, you know? But I get a kick out of the notion that Smith can't wait a few more hours. Can you imagine being locked up in a spaceship with this guy? You know, you're, you're going between planets for year-long journeys, and he can't wait for a few hours to have the air analyzed? Please. Yeah, it's funny. And Don was saying, Smith... <laughs> But once in your life, try to be reasonable. I mean, he's barking up the wrong tree there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah, what a pain. Oh, yeah. Well, sometime later, with the act reaching a climax, we're back on the upper deck. Dr. Smith is peering out of the main viewport. But there's little to see, because the fog's still thick as pea soup. Growing stir-crazy, Smith vents his frustrations to the robot. But B9 advises patience, adding all things come to those who wait. That's little comfort to Smith, who heaps scorn on his cybernetic sidekick. Spare me your simple Simon philosophy, you bumbling bird brain. Without being told, the silly goose holds his tongue, then turns his back on Smith and rolls away. Where do you think you're going? It is not necessary that I stay here and be insulted. Just a moment, you mechanical misery. Let's get something straight once and for all. You are a machine. You do not have the mental and physical attributes of a mortal. You cannot be insulted. You are entitled to your opinion, sir. I am entitled to mine. Silence, Nitty. The matter is settled. The robot continues to argue his case, but Smith ends the discussion by returning to his idea of sending B-9 out to check the environment. That's when Will arrives upstairs, just in time to add his two cents. I know what you're thinking, Dr. Smith, but Dad said no one was allowed outside until he completed his tests. He was referring to humans, not machines. Professor Robinson will not be pleased. He was concerned about my corroding. Let me worry about that. Besides, nothing could harm you, you Ferris Frankenstein. Out, out, out! The robot's right, Dr. Smith. He's got a lot of delicate parts. Yes, they are very sensitive. (laughs) Sensitive, indeed. Believe me, there's no need to worry. In the event any illness occurs, I can cure it instantly with just one drop of machine oil. Out! B-9 continues to object, but Dr. Smith answers by opening the airlock and ushering the reluctant robot out into the dark and foggy night. You know, I know this scene is being played for comedy, Kurt, but I really got a chuckle when Smith opened both doors of the airlock at the same time. A mistake they'll make again later, by the way. So much for keeping things safe inside the ship, I guess. Oh, yeah, really. I hope they don't make that mistake in space. Sheesh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as B-9 disappears into the gloom, Dr. Smith closes the hatches, then uses the radio to contact his brave hero. This is Dr. Smith. This is Dr. Smith. Don't talk so loudly. My audio units are extremely sensitive. Silence! Report what observations you have. I have analyzed the contents of the fog. It contains the necessary amount of oxygen for human breathing purposes. Just as I thought. Can we go outside in safety? No. The fog also contains cosmic dust, which would be harmful if taken into the body over a period of time. An artificial breathing apparatus is suggested. 
The robot continues with his observations. Capable of sustaining plant life, and there is a water supply in the area. But then abruptly breaks it off when he spots someone or something in the murkiness. Wait, I see something. Addressing the unidentified threat, we can hear B9 warning it to stand back or be destroyed. Continue, you idiot! What do you see? Robot, come in if you're all right. Answer at once. But as Dr. Smith and Will exchange worried glances, there's only dead silence at the other end. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, I think he ran out of phone minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Dropped call. Yeah. Well, folks, could this really be the end of the line for B9? What's more? When Professor Robinson learns what he's done this time, will Dr. Smith's joyride finally be over? I guess we'll have to wait until after this break for station identification to find out. Boston Space will continue after station identification. This is CBS. When we return from the break to start Act 2, huddled around the damaged astrogator, Major West, Marine, and Will listen as an irate Professor Robinson grills Dr. Smith. You know my orders. No one was to leave the spaceship. No one did. I merely sent the robot out. Surely there's nothing objectionable about that. Crossing his arms in frustration, the Professor reiterates that the robot is as important to the survival of their expedition as any other member. Seeing a chance to pile on, Don blurts out, As a matter of fact, Smith, if it came down to a choice between you and the robot, guess who I'd take? Happily, Major, the choice is not yours. Really, Professor, I simply cannot understand all this excitement. I'm sure the robot is perfectly safe. If so, why doesn't he answer? Hmm. Despite the fact that he and Will heard B-9 was in trouble... Dr. Smith deflects by offering bland reassurances. John isn't reassured, and without consulting the computer or checking with Mrs. Robinson, he makes a command decision. Since Dr. Smith is the one who sent the robot out, Smith will bring him back in. You... you can't be serious, can you? Think of the horrors that await me out there. I refuse to go. I simply will not put a step out of this room. The professor's face remains resolute. You'll go if we have to carry you out. Despite claiming he feels faint, not to mention his delicate back, Smith's protests and appeals for compassion fall on deaf ears. Even Mrs. Robinson agrees, someone has to get the robot, and Dr. Smith's responsible. Taking delight in Smith's agony, Major West hands his nervous nemesis a laser pistol and respirator as the men escort him to the airlock. Oh, very well, Major. I shall go. But remember, if anything happens to me, it will be on your conscience. I'm surprised the Major didn't say, I'm counting on that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Professor Robinson promises they'll come after him if anything goes wrong. But for Smith... That'll be too little and too late. Fed up with Smith's belly aching, 
Don muzzles the skittish scoundrel by comically forcing the oxygen mask over his complaining mouth. Then, for some reason, as John gives Smith his final marching orders, the Major inexplicably opens both hatches of the airlock. Repeating the same boneheaded move we saw the boys do earlier. I guess they don't mind exchanging their fresh air for a little cosmic dust smog, eh, Kurt? Yeah, really. You know, it's funny how everyone, including the kids, value the robot more than Smith. So no one is going to run <laughs> to Smith's defense in this issue. For once, he's actually facing the music. Mm-hmm. In, yeah. in my view, that's too little too late. <laughs> <laughs> You know, in real life, Dr. Smith would have been the victim of so many blanket parties, it wouldn't even be funny. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's funny. Well, putting off the inevitable, Dr. Smith loiters by the wide-open airlock. Then, when Mrs. Robinson wishes him a final good luck, he pitifully replies, Never fear. Smith is here. Oh, dear. At last, the doctor takes one baby step into the passageway, then abruptly spins on his heels and tries to force his way back inside the ship. But Professor Robinson blocks his path, allowing a very satisfied Major West to whirl Smith back around and roughly shove the wailing wimp through the airlock into the gloomy alien blackness outside. You know, you have to wonder, Kurt, how many takes it took to get that scene filmed because both Guy and Mark were visibly biting their lips to keep from breaking up. I thought that was very funny. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, laughing and smirking still fit the scene because that's how the characters would have really felt, causing Smith misery. So it was basically Mm. method acting. That's true. Yeah. Well, cutting outside, Dr. Smith stumbles his way through the soupy terrain, which is littered with volcanic rock formations, strange overgrown alien plants, and of course, sand. Lots and lots of sand. In addition to the strange sights of this new world, the night air is filled with strange sounds which only served to further stress Dr. Smith's already overwrought nerves. When Smith reports back that he's heard something up ahead, the professor orders him to find out what it is. Smith balks, but John repeats, You've got to find the robot. Robot indeed. Little do you care for poor Dr. Smith. Oh dear. Forcing himself forward, Dr. Smith suddenly emerges from the fog bank, then takes off his oxygen mask and quickly discovers the air to be safe. Breathing in deeply, he rejoices. Ah, air, fresh, delightful air, the sweet nectar of life. (sighs) Hearing Smith's chatter, John asks what's going on. The most wonderful thing has happened, Professor. You found the robot? I've discovered something even more interesting. We no longer have to worry about... (laughs) We're not shown 
the growling creature that's threatening Dr. Smith, just his terrified reactions as he backs away from the camera, draws his laser pistol, and warns it to stay back. Stay away from me! Stay away from me! I warn you! With the music building to a crescendo, John desperately calls over the radio. Smith! What is it? Smith! Smith, can you hear me? But before Dr. Smith can squeeze off even one blast, he's overcome with panic and blacks out, tumbling helplessly onto the sandy ground. Then suddenly, the camera cuts to a close-up of the comatose coward's motionless feet as a large pair of cloven hooves stomp into the frame, followed by two hideous hairy claws that reach down, clutching Dr. Smith by the feet, then drag him away to an uncertain fate. Oh dear. Well, at this point, the strange sound of that snarling beast, the stringy brown hair covering what little we could see of its body, and of course, Dr. Smith's hysterical reactions certainly made me anxious to see more of this beast. You're our resident monster expert, Kurt. I'll hold off on asking you to pass final judgment until we get to see the full Monty, but were you at all frustrated with how they strung us along for the big reveal? Oh, no, actually, I like this a lot. I don't mind a little foreplay as long as the goods are eventually delivered. The entire episode up until this point had great suspense and ambiance. The next scene and a half are great, too, but spoiler alert, we're about to go from serious to silly... And there's nothing you can do about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it almost makes the contrast even more glaring. But yes, jolting. uh Well, I think there's one thing we can agree on. It's been a while since that creature has dropped into a nail salon. He's got some nice claws anyway. Oh, it's all the way up until that point, and you know, they show just enough of it. In fact, they show all of it that they can without spoiling it. Mm-hmm. Less is more sometimes, right? That's yeah. kind of like Alien. You know, they showed you only little glimpses of, of that creature. Mm-hmm. Which is why that first Alien movie is so much better than the other Alien movies, in my humble opinion. Oh, I agree. It's a haunted house in space, really, kind of a... Somebody was... I was just reading about somebody. They said their entire thing, you know, it's the fear of the unknown. That is the greatest fear of all. Mm-hmm. So the less that you can reveal, the more... Oh, it was Robert Weiss. Robert Weiss, of all people, the guy who directed The Sound of Music, which, of course, mm-hmm. Penny was in. He also did a, uh, he did a movie called The Haunting. And it was The Haunting of Hill House, uh, which is a wonderful film in which there's no monsters. And there's actually nothing in it at all as far as a good picture of a, a creature. There's, if you try to get a scary picture of that, all you have is people looking nervous and stuff. But it's a very frightening movie. Uh-huh. And it's all because of the, the fear of the unknown. And I heard this on a commentary track of a Val Luton movie. That's where Robert Wise started. He actually edited parts of Citizen Kane, if you can believe that. And then he went on to work with Val Luton. And Val Luton was famous for doing these B-movies, which was all about suspense. And Val Luton agreed with Lovecraft and said, it's the fear of the unknown. You don't have to show anything. It's, It's the fear of what that something might be, which is far more frightening than actually seeing what it is. That's a good point. That's a good point. Well, you go back and forth on these things, you know, because I think we both have agreed 
maybe we're in the minority, though. That movie, The Curse of the Demon, mm-hmm. they actually show you the demon. But that was a really scary... When you saw it, it there was a payoff there, in my humble yes. opinion. And not only did it show you a great monster, which uh, to me it's just amazing that that was a 1959 monster because the face twitches, there's mm-hmm. all sorts of uh, special mechanics that are going on in that face. It's just a, you would have thought that would have been like 1979 technology. It was a wonderful monster, but it was important to show that monster because for the rest of the whole movie, you are in the loop that you know that the danger is real. Right. Okay. Exactly. And if they hadn't have shown that, you might have had that little bit saying, well, maybe he's just imagining it. Maybe it is just, you know, they're playing with his, his mind. But you know, it's not a maybe psychopathic killer out to get him. It is a real murdering creature out to get him. And the sooner he realizes it, the sooner he'll be safer. And that makes it, that movie tremendously suspenseful because he doesn't believe it until the very last few moments. No, that was cool. But you can see there's two sides of the coin, right? Yes. And uh, I, I love Robert Wise. Oh, did he have something to do with uh, Day the Earth Stood Still? He was the director. That was the I, director. Yes, I can't. Yeah. I can't, how can we forget that? How can we forget that? Yeah, exactly. My God. Exactly. <laughs> well, back inside the Jupiter 2, some time has passed. Will Robinson is trying to reach Dr. Smith over the radio but without success. While the women are busy repairing the damaged equipment on the upper deck, just then, both airlock hatches glide open as the professor and Major West stride in without their missing miscreant. Removing their respirators, the men report they've covered the whole area around the ship, but there's no sign of Dr. Smith or the robot for that matter. Major West almost sounds sincere when he suggests that Maybe they'll have a better chance finding Dr. Smith in the morning. That's little comfort to Will, though. Something terrible's happened to him. I just know it. If only we hadn't made him go out. Oh, no, Will. No, somebody had to do it. And Dr. Smith knew that no one, not even the robot, was allowed outside. But it didn't make any difference to him. No, Will. He deliberately disobeyed orders. Well, I know what he did was wrong, but, but that's Dr. Smith. You just can't expect him to act like everyone else. Well, I do, son. Especially when he endangers the welfare of the rest of us. I guess you're right, Dad. How can he be wrong? He's Professor Know-it-all. <laughs> yeah. With the matter settled, for now, John suggests they all turn in. Showing no qualms about Dr. Smith's ghastly fate, Major West heartily seconds the motion, followed quickly by a round of happy eyes from the rest of the family. That is except for Will, who appears heartbroken, I'm not very sleepy, Mom. I'd like to stay up a little longer. What, in the hopes that Dr. Smith might communicate with us? Please, Mom. Just for a little while. Well, I... John? Morning. All right, dear. But 10 o'clock is curfew. Thanks, Mom. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night, Mom. Good night, Dad. Now, Kurt, I won't ask you if you knew Will was going to sneak out of the ship, because after 32 episodes... (laughs) That'd be a really stupid question. I will ask you, though, how long did you think it would be before Will disobeyed orders and left the ship? Wow. You know, we knew he was going to do it. Even I, Captain Cynical, though, was amazed at how quickly 
he directly disobeyed his father mere minutes after agreeing it was wrong that Smith disobeyed orders. You know, kids, you can't live with them and you can't reproduce without them. Yeah, I'm starting to understand why John seems ticked off all the time, though, because whenever he turns around, either Smith or Will are directly disobeying orders. It's... And the worst part about it is that, you know, Will does it in order to save Smith. <laughs> you know, it's like the worst possible excuse there is. <laughs> Well, just seconds later, alone on the upper deck, Will picks up the microphone and tries once more to contact Dr. Smith. But once again, there's no answer over the radio. Before giving up and heading off to bed himself, the boy then hears what sounds like some tapping on the metallic hull of the ship. Concerned it might be Dr. Smith, the boy reacts by opening the airlock and suddenly we can hear a weird sound echoing through the fog. Peering out into the darkness, Will calls out for Dr. Smith. Dr. Smith, is that you? Oh dear. Desperate, the boy talks himself into disobeying orders to go look for Smith. After all, it may be too late in the morning, but before he leaves the ship, Will leaves a recorded message for Dad, explaining what he's up to adding thoughtfully that he'll record everything he sees so they'll be able to play it back later. I guess in case he winds up MIA as well. Yeah, you know, that was actually pretty considerate of him. If my children are going to disobey me and sneak out at night on a planet that has already kidnapped or killed two other members of my group, I appreciate the fact that at least they are going to transmit and record their final blood-curdling screams so I have something to remember them by. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I know you won't like it, Dad, but I'm going to disobey anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Well, after finishing his suicide recording, Will grabs a laser pistol, then races out of the ship on his little errand of mercy. You know, I was happy, though, to see for once. Will remembered to close the airlock behind him especially with all that noxious cosmic smog drifting into the ship. But one thing I noticed that he forgot to take was an oxygen mask. Now, maybe Will's a really fast sprinter, Kurt, but if not, he better be really good at holding his breath. Did you catch that? You know, even my seven-year-old caught that and literally screamed at the TV, Don't forget your mask! (laughs) Oh, they, they opened both airlocks. They forget to wear the respirators. They never follow orders. How do these guys survive in space? I don't get it. It's crazy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you should be happy he did close the door after he left. That's a new one for Will. Usually he just bolts out and leaves the door open. <laughs> yeah, that was like uh, one of the funniest things about Star Trek is the doors are always shutting on the cast or not opening, you know. <laughs> they had so many takes of people just running into the door. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, a short time later, with the act nearing a close, we dissolve outside as Will makes his way through the dark, unfamiliar terrain of this strange new alien world. Fortunately, even without a respirator, the boy appears to have survived his trip through the toxic fog and is now in the clear. But then, Will stumbles into a large puddle of milky white goo. Yuck. 
Pulling his foot out of the repulsive mess, he dutifully reports the weird finding back to the ship's radio recorder. Innocently noting that it seems to be some kind of sticky growth, the boy wonders at its purpose, because if anything stepped on it, it'd be stuck and couldn't get out. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, that looked like a puddle of Cyclops semen to me, no. really. But, but then I remembered we're on a different planet, supposedly, and the monsters here make quacking noises. And then it occurred to me, oh my God, that looks like a giant pool of bird crap. Did Will just step in the final remains of Dr. Smith? I mean, all these things are racing through my mind, but we get answers real soon, thankfully. Oh my gosh. The Cyclops. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I see the wheels turning in your head right now. Can we say that or not? I don't know. That's funny, though. <laughs> it's a medical term. <laughs> uh. Suddenly, Will's question is answered by the loud shrieks of a terrifying alien menace. <laughs> Drawing his ray gun in defense, our young castaway looks up as we cut to the gruesome sight of a giant spider. Perched on a nearby rock formation and ready to strike at its prey. Oh dear. Shrouded in webs, the abdominable arachnid flashes its blood-red eyes, screeching as it rocks from side to side. Fortunately, we'll save the trouble of calling for the Orkin Man to come exterminate the pest because for some reason, it doesn't attack. Likewise, Will holds his fire, then carefully sidesteps around the spider's trap, maintaining a healthy distance as he exits the grisly gargantua's lair. Well, here's a softball question, Kurt. Did that spider look familiar to you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was one of our favorite monsters from the uh, zoo episode with uh, Speak of the Devil, Day the Earth Stood Still, Michael Rennie. Michael Rennie, the keeper, the keeper. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. He was beautiful. And he apparently makes another uh, appearance later on in the series. In fact, I think it's in the very next episode, isn't it? Uh, it's a couple episodes from now, The Prisoners okay. of Space. You know, the thing about it is, in The Keeper... He's giant. Yeah, he was giant, and it was hard to get an idea of the scale of that spider because it's never shown in the same frame with Will, but I had the impression, at least, it was a lot smaller than when we saw it in The Keeper. What would you think? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And that's one of the little disappointing things about their recycling because they'll take some of their biggest and best monsters and then they'll put them in little cameos where like they're the cyclops and now they're you know human size or it's the giant chariot size monster and they'll shrink them down to spider size and it's just like eh, you know please can't you you know yeah. shake it up a little bit but no yeah that is it's so Irwin <laughs> <laughs> so Irwin everyone else is thinking big eh, I'll go the other direction <laughs> but that'll was, surprise them I, I was glad to see it again it's Spoiler alert, it's the scariest monster in the whole show, right? Oh, boy, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, after seeing that spider, it does bring up another possibility. Maybe that's what the puddle was. I mean, it's this big white goo, you know, right there. Maybe it was spider shit. <coughs> uh, crap, you know, <laughs> because they got to defecate, too, and it's right by his web. So, you know, it was something. What was it? Yeah, I don't know. It seemed odd because he's got webs to trap people. Why does he need right. glue? And it obviously doesn't glue because it, he lifts his spoot right out of it. So. Yeah. So. 
Anyway. Yeah, Irwin's probably laughing in his grave right now. You know, here we are trying to make sense of this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) We have talked about this scene three times longer than it actually took to play, but they... We're criticizing him, and yet he's just laughing his ass off, saying, you're actually trying to make sense of this crap? I mean, literally, you're trying to make sense of the crap. The crap, yeah. (laughs) Talk about a fool's errand. Yeah. Well, having successfully avoided becoming a quick meal for the alien bug, Will holsters his weapon... Dr. Smith! ...and continues his search for his missing friend. But unfortunately, his repeated calls for Dr. Smith are met with no answer. Dad, I've covered quite a bit of territory... Still no sign of Dr. Smith or the robot. There's sure are a lot of weird things around. We're going to have to be real careful. But just then, we can hear the freaky sounds of approaching footsteps plopping on the sandy soil. The disturbance causes Will to stop recording and look over his shoulder. That's when we finally get a good look at the terrifying, squawking creature that alarmed the robot, then drug a comatose Dr. Smith away to a grisly fate. Oh, dear. Okay, Mr. Monster Wax, that's wax.com, folks. (laughs) It's your time to shine. Give us a thumbnail description of this, air quotes, threatening, horrifying beast, and tell us just how scared you think young Will Robinson should be. Oh, bless you, my child. I've been waiting all episode to describe this monstrosity. It's a big guy in a fursuit with a bird head on top, complete with a goofy beak, and just to make sure nobody gets scared by the silliest monster costume ever devised on Outer Limits just two years earlier, they've added a big pair of floppy testicles right underneath this beak. I'm serious. That's exactly what it looks like. Lost in space balls. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It was really... <laughs> it was the silliest thing I ever saw. And the sound is not... You know, we've praised the sound effects guy in this show many times for the mm-hmm. the sound effects of the creatures and everything. Just like the spider. It sounded pretty cool. Absolutely. But this thing, it's, how would you describe that? It sounds like a quacking duck almost, in a way. That's exactly what it sounded like. And I'm surprised the guy didn't resign his post in protest because it's like... <laughs> Everything I've done, you've undermined it in this one episode. It's that one sound effect. I mean, even the penguin sounded more scary on Batman than this thing did. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, once more threatened, Will reacts instinctively for the second time, drawing his laser pistol, warning the creature to stay back or he'll shoot as the fine-feathered fiend relentlessly advances closer and closer. But Big Bird is either unafraid or doesn't speak English because the oversized avian alien keeps on moving in for the kill. Uh Uh-oh. I say, I say, pull that trigger, boy. Hold that trigger. Uh, That boy's as timid as a canary at a catcher. Yeah, it was weird. Well, with any luck, our young castaway will shoot before his goose is cooked. And the Robinsons will be singing, Winner, winner, chicken dinner tonight. But unfortunately, we'll have to wait until after this commercial 
to find out. Lost in Space, brought to you by... The ruinous roach is destroying my food. Rags, the repulsive rat is wrecking my business. Termites are destroying my home. We, we want action, now! Get Otto, get Otto the Orkin Man. I'm Otto the Orkin Man. Otto the Orkin Man. To control your pest, Orkin is best. Call Otto the Orkin Man. When we return from the break to start Act 3, Will's had the entire commercial break to blast Foghorn Leghorn, but for some reason, he hasn't. Oh, he's probably too confused. He can't decide whether you should shoot the monster in the face or in the gonads. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. But just then, an armed humanoid stranger with a head of bright orange hair and a beard comes scampering out from behind some boulders. Dressed in a tattered smock and badly in need of a bath, the alien sharply barks at the freaky fowl, then hooks a leash to its collar and turns his attention and his oversized laser musket towards Will. With the creature tamed for the moment, the boy responds by holstering his weapon and offering his hand in greeting. I'm Will Robinson from the planet Earth. Pleased to meet you, sir. Who cares what your name is or where you came from? Stay there or I'll shoot. You're making a mistake, sir. I'm a friend. You're an evader and an enemy. That's what you are. (laughs) Will tries to reassure the suspicious stranger that he comes in peace, but Carrot Top isn't interested in his lies and unbelievable stories. (laughs) Instead, he disarms the boy, making Will his prisoner of war and reveals he's already captured Dr. Smith and their mechanical spy, the robot. The boy's relieved his friends are alive, but disturbed to learn that he's to be taken to a military outpost and questioned by the combative captor's superiors. You mean there are more aliens on this planet? Thousands of us are mobilized. We are all armed and prepared to resist attack. (laughs) Then, before marching the boy off to an uncertain fate... The wacky character corrects Will for calling him an alien and rightly points out that on this planet, it's the Robinsons who are the strangers. Mm. Yeah, thank God, someone else. Uh huh. Well, the Robinsons may be aliens, Kurt, but they're very fortunate aliens because they just happen to speak the native language of this planet, English. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, at this point, they've completely jumped the logic shark. You know, they probably saw how the competing Star Trek was getting away with no explanation whatsoever as to why their aliens spoke English. So they figured, why are we trying so hard? No one else does it. It's kind of ironic, though, because in season one, we couldn't understand many of the aliens. But Mm -hmm. the stories all made good sense. Here in season two... It's the aliens who speak perfect English, but the plots are all gibberish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a fair point. 
But again, in addition to the language issue, it is amazing how many of the aliens in this galaxy look remarkably similar to Earthlings, don't you think? Yes. Yeah, they have it. You know, eventually they, they start adding the the colors. They start putting gold and silver right. on their skin. But, you know, it's still cheap Charlie all the way through. Absolutely. I guess we were supposed to be impressed with his bright orange hair, but, you know, yeah. I read somewhere that the uh, art designer, Bill Kreber, for Lost in Space, he was, <laughs> he said, Irwin's favorite color was orange, so we put that in a lot of the shows. We couldn't think, <laughs> think of anything else to do. Just make it orange. And you know all their Star Trek fans are sitting there sanctimoniously shaking their heads saying, well, at least we had all these wonderful aliens. Yeah, your aliens, they all had different latex ears and that was a bit, oh okay well that's an everything you know personally i think the the silver spray paint or the gold spray paint is more of a diversity than the latex ears I mean, that's just me personally but mm. did you notice how spock himself was actually kind of green in the first episode and mm. then they they you know slowly faded it out yeah I don't know why they changed it, though, but you could definitely pick up on it at first. It was all sort of weird. He supposedly had, you know... Uh, well, green... He, he's, he had green blood, right? Yeah, he, so maybe that was... He supposed to had green blood, yeah. but, you know, how is that supposed to work? I mean, he ate plants, so why would he have green blood? Well... And plus, he was supposedly super strong. Now, you know, there's not too many plants you're going to get a lot of protein from unless you eat beans, and he wasn't eating a whole lot of beans. Yeah. At least not it, according to Enterprise. <laughs> And I'm not sure I'd want to I'd be on the bridge with the Vulcan who ate a lot of beads, but that's just me. Yeah. In those confined spaces, unless the air filters were really good, that might have been a problem. Yeah. As long as we're talking about his blood, it was usually a throwaway line for Bones. You know, you green-blooded devil, you know, he'd say something like that. But mm -hmm. I recall there was an episode where they actually used that as a plot device. They said everybody else was getting sick or something. Because the disease was attacking the iron and the hemoglobin, but Spock was immune, and they found out. Well, mm -hmm. my hemoglobin is based on copper, not iron. That's what, yes, that's I remember that. I remember something that. like that, right? Am I uh -huh. dreaming that? I thought that was something. So this advice. is great. Not only is Irwin Allen laughing his ass off at us, but now Gene Roddenberry's doing it too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. A little later, we arrive at the entrance to the Ginger Jailer's military outpost, which, of course, is a cave. If you'll just listen to me, I'm sure I could explain everything, sir. At least you could tell me your name. Well, if you must know, I'm Captain Tiavo, Special Intelligence of the Army. If you'll excuse me, sir, you don't look much like a soldier. That sure is a strange-looking uniform you're wearing. This is not my uniform! When your spacecraft landed, I was assigned the task of investigation. It suited my purpose to use this disguise. Stand guard. Tiabo leaves his bizarre birdie outside on guard, then forces the boy into his cavernous command post. Now in with you. Get in. Inside. Once inside the rustic abode, the captain orders Will to join his friends, Dr. Smith and the robot. Get over there with your friends. Thankfully, both appear unharmed, but they're shackled to the cave wall with oversized iron locks and chains. Dr. Smith! Oh, William, my dear little friend, I can't tell you how delighted I am to see you. Is the robot all right? I'm well enough, considering... Nothing can harm this mechanical misfit. Everyone's been worried about you, sir. How dear and sweet they all are to me. I hope you've been able to convince this gentleman that he's made an error... 
Will says he's tried to, but Captain Tiabo refuses to believe their story. Still, Tiabo does allow Will to unchain the others, then ominously cautions they're to be interrogated to pieces by General Andos from staff headquarters, and they better tell the truth, or it'll be very bad for them. Rattled by Captain Tiabo's dire threats, Dr. Smith clutches his human shield Will for protection. But before leaving to contact his superiors, the feisty fellow warns them against an escape by gleefully mentioning with a snap of his crooked teeth that his feathered friend outside has an enormous appetite. Then Tiabo comically bunny hops out of the chamber. I'm starting to get a creepy vibe from this Mr. Cox. He drags the boy to a dungeon-like cave to join his other male prisoners, where he apparently lives alone except for this human-shaped chick monster that he leads around on a leash wearing a big sadomasochistic collar. I'm starting to get those uncomfortable memories of that basement scene from the movie Pulp Fiction and the Gimp. Oh, here we go. (laughs) Well, it is pretty weird. It is very weird. (laughs) It's very weird. Last time you brought up Deliverance and now Pulp Fiction. Those are two of the worst scenes. I'm sure that one's a hit on YouTube as well. But these were mainstream movies. It's not like I just sit around and watch, you know. Of course not. <laughs> well, that's what makes them so memorable, though. I mean, they everybody was talking about that scene in Pulp Fiction, I know. And at least I'm not as fixated on the Furbies as you are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my. Well, once they're alone... Dr. Smith worriedly tells Will that not only does Captain Tiabo think the castaways are invading their planet, but it's even worse. The aliens are mobilizing their army, tens of thousands strong, to defend themselves. Will wants to get back to warn the others, but Smith insists that's impossible with that monster standing guard over them. While they wait helplessly for whatever dreadful fate that's in store for them, Dr. Smith takes a seat, then notices a small wooden keg dripping liquid on Tiabo's table. Without hesitating, Smith tastes the liquid and finds it much to his liking. Mm. So he helps himself to a mugful of the alien drink and proceeds to drown his sorrows with the marvelous beverage. But B9 cautions, Warning! Warning! What is it? I advise caution in drinking the liquid. Its contents have not been analyzed. Nonsense, you nervous ninny! I just had some, and I feel perfectly fine. The robot's right, Dr. Smith. You should listen to him. There's absolutely nothing wrong with this drink, William. If there were, my educated palate would have recognized it immediately. Guzzling down more, the thirsty therapist raves. Ah, delicious. I must ask Captain Tiabo what it is. It's sheer nectar. Mm. Just then... The jocular mood is interrupted by the voice of Captain Tiabo communicating his report to Supreme Staff Headquarters. This is Captain Tiabo at Military Outpost 77D, calling Supreme Staff Headquarters. I have information of a vital nature to transmit to General Andos concerning the vicious sneak attack of our beloved homeland. Do you read me, Supreme Headquarters? Over. Smith and Will quickly discover the transmissions are being broadcast on a recycled bread box sized control unit tricked out with an old-fashioned golden gramophone speaker as a view screen. 
Suddenly, the superior officer receiving Tiabo's report appears on the screen. We are receiving you, Captain Tiabo. Despite being clean-shaven, except for a neat pencil mustache, the alien officer in the snappy uniform seems remarkably familiar. His headgear should be very familiar, since he's wearing the exact same silver combat helmet Officer Bollocks wore in All That Glitters, complete with the Jetson antenna poking up on the side. (laughs) Well then, the screen goes dark after Baby Bollocks signs off to inquire if the general would like to question the prisoners. Dr. Smith grows shaky and decides to fortify himself with some more liquid courage, gulping down a little more of Captain Tiabo's delightful beverage. But then, the screen flashes on again, and General Andos appears. The strangely familiar but stern-faced, bald-headed alien with a goatee wears a chest full of medals and interrogates our castaways in a high-pitched, impatient tone. The general accuses them of being a group of uncivilized savages and demands to know why they launched an unprovoked attack on their planet. Our castaways repeatedly attempt to convince the belligerent brigadier that they didn't fire that missile and they're not hostile. But wishing to hear no more of their lies, the alien abruptly silences the bewildered boys. Then General Andos addresses Captain Tiabo off screen. Captain Tiabo? Yes, sir. You are to keep these prisoners under security until our secret super weapon is ready to be launched? A secret weapon? Silence, prisoner! As for the Earthlings on the spaceship, our army will take care of the few who survive the attack of our secret weapon. Unless, of course, they're wise enough to leave immediately, General. For their sakes, I hope so. Then, having strangely allowed the prisoners to listen in on their plans, General Andos signs off. It's a disturbing development, especially for Smith. At least for those on the Jupiter II, the end will be mercifully quick. Who knows what dire fate awaits us? There's something strange going on here, Dr. Smith. There is? Didn't you notice that the Army officer and the General and Captain Tiabo all looked alike? Perhaps all the aliens on this planet resemble each other. Maybe, but I still think something's wrong. We've got to escape, Dr. Smith. We've got to warn the others about the alien secret weapon. But Smith brushes off Will's concerns and is more bothered by the sudden return of the eccentric captain. I must leave for headquarters immediately. A squad of soldiers will be sent to get you. Captain Tiabo, please listen to me. We're not your enemies, and we didn't invade your planet. Honest, we didn't. I'm not interested in anything further you have to say. Do not attempt to escape, or my friend outside will devour you. Then, squawking like a chicken himself... (laughs) Tiabo strangely scampers out of the cave, leaving the boys alone to fret over their uncertain future. You know... I have to say, Kurt, I've seen this episode enough times that that big reveal that Tiabo was just playing the other aliens was no surprise to me, but it was pretty obvious, wasn't it? Yeah, they looked similar, and yet they were different enough for me. And they sounded different enough, too, but they all had that same 
high-pitched nasal tone. That cartoon character's like underdog and Tennessee tuxedo hat. Yeah. So yeah, the, the seed that they were the same guy was firmly planted. But I did like Smith's rationalization that maybe all the aliens on this planet resemble each other, which, you know, could very well be true. That's something humans are famous for saying about other ethnic groups. Sure. That they all look alike or sound alike. Yeah. But so leave it to Smith to say something that politically incorrect, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it that way. Hmm. Yeah. Well, with their captor gone, Dr. Smith's thirst returns, and he soothes his shattered nerves by slurping down more of the refreshing alien drink. There's something about this drink. Once you start, you can't stop. How can you be thirsty at a time like this? Oh, believe me, Will. I'm just as worried as you are, but I always get extremely thirsty in times of danger. I have scanned the exterior of this cave, and the monster is no longer there. Sneaking a peek, Will reports, he's right. Oh, fortune has smiled upon us. We can leave this dank tavern and return to the safety of the Jupiter too. That seemed too easy to Will, and that's got his spidey sense tingling again. But once more, Dr. Smith waves off the boys' apprehensions. With the monster gone, they can return to the spaceship and warn the others. With no time to waste, our intrepid trio hurriedly head out of the cave. But Dr. Smith does take time to grab Tiabo's moonshine keg, explaining to Will that it's a long way back and one of them might want a drink. I wonder who. Mm -hmm. You know, Kurt, Smith's certainly enjoying that marvelous drink. But after he ran off of that keg, my spidey sense was going off bigly. Yeah. They did everything but give that keg a close-up, didn't they? Yeah, that and the fact that the robot warned him not to drink it. But when Smith bragged about how educated his taste buds were, you know, in the Smith world... Pride always comes before the fall. Mm. So we know that he's going to go down and soon. <laughs> Bigly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, with the actioneering a close, our three missing castaways march a steady pace through the seemingly deserted alien landscape on their way back to the Jupiter 2. As the camera tracks along with them, we suddenly spot Captain Tiabo and his bird-brained buddy crouched behind some boulders, keeping a watchful eye on the escaping Earthlings. Far from upset, Captain Tiabo cackles to his avian accomplice that they're doing just as he planned. Uh-oh. The captain's cuckoo crows back in approval, but the alien quiets him with a nice golf ball-sized treat. Yummy. Silence! (laughs) (laughs) Well, cutting back to our heroes, a feeling of great weariness has suddenly overtaken Dr. Smith. Taking a seat on a conveniently placed rock, the flagging physician decides to take one last little drink. Having drained the barrel dry, Dr. Smith elects to unburden himself of the empty keg and absentmindedly tosses it over his shoulders. But no sooner does the cask hit the ground behind them than it detonates in a violent explosion. Uh Uh-oh. Smith jumps to his feet like a scalded dog, and all three castaways stare in wonder as a cloud of purple haze rises from the sight of the unexpected blast. 
The day's doctor asked the same question I had. It's absolute nonsense. How can a harmless beverage explode? May I have that goblet, Dr. Smith? V9 scans the cup and computes. A very interesting mixture. I detect the chemicals C3, H5, HO2, and mixed with... Spare me the chemistry lesson. What have I been drinking? A liquid high explosive. What? You are filled with an extremely dangerous beverage. I suggest that Dr. Smith be kept at a safe distance from the others. Why? Because it is possible that he may blow up at any moment. He is a walking bomb. Oh, the pain. (laughs) You know, Kurt, I was concerned that Dr. Smith had developed a drinking problem, but I don't think a trip to the Betty Ford Clinic is going to help him. Seriously, though, this whole bit with him drinking the explosive liquid, that is a classic Dr. Smith move that we've seen before. I guess in the end, Will was right. You just can't expect Dr. Smith to act like everyone else. Uh, No, you can't, but let's be blunt. Smith is a complete dumbass, okay? It reminds me of this trick... (laughs) (laughs) This trick that primitive African tribes do when they want to find out where baboons hide their water in dry regions. Mm. When a hunter sees a baboon near a large ant mound, the native casually digs a small hole just big enough for him to squeeze his hand through the dry mud hole. Then he sticks some melon seeds at the bottom of the hole while the baboon is watching. He then walks away and watches the baboon at a distance. The monkey is so curious, he has to go over there and stick his hand in the hole to find out what the human hid in it, even though he knows it's dangerous because the human is still watching him. He reaches in, he feels the seeds, he grabs them, and he tries to pull his hand out, but his fist is too big, and he's trapped. Mm. And the human races in to grab him while the the monkey panics. He ties a, a leash around that baboon, and he starts feeding it chunks of salt, which the baboon, even though he's scared, eats like candy because salt is so scarce there. Yeah. Then the moment that he's freed, the baboon races off to drink, and the human just follows him straight to a secret water source. Now, see, that's exactly how Smith operates with aliens. He can't resist the bait. Even though he knows it's dangerous, he panics, he gets caught, and he always ends up doing exactly what the aliens want, just like the monkeys. Uh, that's funny. Oh, man. Can't think to let go of those seeds. You know, I, I can't get my hand out. You know, in his case, it would be gold coins. That'd be the only difference. He can't let go of them. Exactly. Wow. Well, before we break for a word from our sponsor, Dr. Smith stares in horror at the innocent-looking goblet in his hands, then ends the act with a bang, tossing the mug away, screaming, No! Lost in Space has been brought to you by... This non-profit podcast is made possible with support from... Monster Wax Trading Cards, makers of science fiction and horror monster cards since 1992. Check out their newest series, Lost in Space, The Art of Ron Gross. It's a dramatic retrospective of the classic TV show in an incredible photorealistic style. Check them out at monsterwax.com. That's monster, W-A-X, dot com. And also through the generous support of listeners via Patreon, where fans fuel their favorite shows. If you'd like to help, just visit 
patreon.com and search Alpha Control. When we return from the break to start the final act, it's next morning outside the Jupiter 2, where the family is pulling together to repair the ship and prepare themselves for a possible enemy alien attack. There's plenty of work to go around, except for the pitiful Dr. Smith, who, sitting alone on a rock, is working hard at not exploding. According to the robot, our miserable MD now has the concussive power equating to 15 sticks of dynamite and is therefore exiled to stay at least 50 yards from the others. Yikes. Yeah, that was weird. You know, they've suddenly ditched the metric system and the robot of all characters went back to the archaic system of yards instead of meters, huh? No, I didn't even catch that. We were just talking about that in the last episode of Kelvin and all that stuff. Hmm. Wow. Fun. Well, obviously, Dr. Smith isn't the castaway's only problem. It'll take a couple of days to repair the force field, weeks just to assess the damage of the ship, and worse, the aliens could launch their secret weapon at any minute. Even Professor Robinson's nerves must be frayed, because when Marine tries to rally spirits with a little motherly optimism, John snaps back, What do you suggest we do, Marine? Call out the Marines? Shades of Canto. (laughs) Mrs. Robinson gives John that you-can-sleep-on-the-couch-tonight look. (laughs) So the professor recovers with a quick apology. With the remark, forgotten and forgiven, Don breaks the awkwardness by suggesting they load up the chariot and make a run for it. No dice, says Professor Robinson. Their best option is to stay put and try to reason with the aliens. Yeah, John says they can't run because friendly people don't run away. He'd rather stay and reason with them, which means fight them if they have to, right? I mean, because he doesn't say that, but we know the drill. I also got a kick out of Marine's passive-aggressive response. Well, that remark is already forgotten and forgiven, she says. That sounds sincere on the surface, but if you think about it... How can you possibly forgive something if you've already forgotten it? You know, it doesn't make any sense. you got to know what you're forgiving, right? So she definitely remembers she's going to remind John, too, if he ever dares to forget. (laughs) Yeah, just take it from a man who's been married for many years. You might get forgiven, but you will never get forgotten. forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. Just then, the robot warns of, Danger! Danger! Stop! Do not come closer! I'd like to talk with someone. I'm so lonely. Can't Dr. Smith come a little bit closer? Not without endangering the lives of all. Professor Robinson, you're a scientist. Surely you can think of something. The professor would like to help, but right now they have other problems. Nobody cares about me. Poor Dr. Smith is in trouble. Well, let him explode. Who needs him anyway? Aww. Maureen assures the downcast doctor they're very worried about him. But the aliens are a worry, too. I'm even afraid to take a walk. Any sharp, sudden movement and... (gasps) I'll just be a memory. (laughs) I would also advise that you remain calm. Internal agitation could produce a reaction in the liquid explosive. 
Don chuckles. Yeah, whatever you do, Dr. Smith, don't get the hiccups. (laughs) Or fart. (laughs) (laughs) Hiding a smile at the Major's joke, Mrs. Robinson dutifully chides Don, who also apologizes and promises they'll do what they can when they can. By that time, it'll be too late. (gasps) Oh, oh dear. Adieu. Oh dear. Adieu. Wearing an expression of utter defeat, Smith gives the family a royal finger wave goodbye as he carefully takes a few steps out of camp. But he doesn't get far before looking back again to milk a little more sympathy from the crowd before finally wandering off into the wilderness to die. The scene causes Marine to lament, Poor Dr. Smith. It must also be remembered, he is a dangerous Dr. Smith. Leaving the Robinsons exchanging silent but very worried looks. Kurt, as usual, Smith was fishing hard for sympathy, and for the most part he got it. But I was getting no such vibe from the robot. If anything, he seemed brutally indifferent to Dr. Smith's plight. How did you compute B9's demeanor? Well, let's put it this way. At a Jewish funeral, it's considered an act of respect to toss a handful of dirt on the casket or body just as Mm. it's buried. I have a feeling the robot won't be doing that for Smith, and not just because he has hooks for hands. (laughs) (laughs) Of sadness, of sorrow. (laughs) Later that night, all is strangely calm as Will and the robot stand watch outside the ship. So far, there's been no sign of an alien attack. In fact... According to the robot scans, there are no signs of any aliens in the area. Hmm. Marine emerges from the ship with a basket of goodies for poor Dr. Smith, which Will volunteers to take to his banished buddy. B-9 gallantly offers to go along, just to make sure Will stays at a safe distance from the human hand grenade. So with the robot in tow for protection, the two head out into the night to find poor Dr. Smith. Later, the boys reach a lonely clearing where they find Smith seated on a ubiquitous rock still wearing an expression of total despair. Will hands over the box of food to Dr. Smith who tears it open claiming he really couldn't eat a morsel as he proceeds to stuff his face with fried chicken. (laughs) Wait, has anyone seen Big Bird? Hmm. Oh, yeah, what's with that? Last time they were eating protein pills. Where did the chicken suddenly come from? You know, now that you mention it, we never see that bird monster again for the rest of this episode, even when Will returns to the cave. I think we may have just discovered the secret ingredient to the colonel's fried chicken. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true, we won't see him again. He's gone. Well, you may be right. He looks like he's uh, finger-licking good at any rate. Mm. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Will tries to comfort the outcast castaway, but every effort brings more agonized discontent from Dr. Smith. The boy earnestly wishes there was something he could do to help. If only I could think of something to take to neutralize that explosive. You mean like an antidote? The aliens might have a cure. Of course. If there's a neutralizer, the aliens would have it. 
A glimmer of hope has brightened Dr. Smith's black mood, and he begs Will to find Captain Tiabo and offer the alien anything in return for the neutralizer. The boy agrees, then orders B-9 to let this be our little secret. But the robot sensibly responds, I disapprove of this act. Hold your tongue, you silly goose. With the matter settled, Will promises to get back real soon, then races out of the area on his second, for those of you keeping track, unauthorized errand of mercy for this episode. With the boy gone, Dr. Smith turns to the robot and piously avows... A man couldn't hope for a better friend than that dear little boy. A pity the same can't be said about you, Dr. Smith. How dare you, you disreputable dunce! <gasps> oh, oh dear. A little later, we return to Captain Tiabo's cave. There's no sign of the alien or his bird buddy outside or inside the main chamber. Captain Tiabo! Will calls out for Tiabo but gets no response, so he makes his way through a passageway into an adjacent room. Stealthily stepping inside the captain's inner sanctum, Will sees the spaces littered with alien uniforms, the bollocks helmet, and even an actor's bald cap. Seated with his back to the boy, we can see the ginger gentleman's got his oversized eyeglasses on, but they fail to help Mr. Peepers detect our young castaway's presence as he uses a high-tech reel-to-reel tape recorder to create another phony military broadcast. As emperor of this planet, I give you this final warning. Leave this planet immediately or face certain death and destruction. General, will you tell these earthlings what is in store for them if they do not depart? I should be glad to, sir. We shall attack! Finally noticing Will standing right next to him, the alien ends his act and leaps to his feet. What are you doing here? Looking for you. If you come to plead for the lives of the others, you're wasting your time. There's no need to pretend anymore, Mr. Tiabo. I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, you do. There isn't any emperor or general of the army. You just pretended there were. I thought something was strange when I saw that the general and the army officer all looked alike. You're all alone on this planet, aren't you? I thought I could frighten you away. And that secret weapon was the liquid explosive you gave Dr. Smith to drink, wasn't it? I thought he would explode on the spaceship and I'd be rid of you. But why? I told you we were friends. For over 200 years, this planet has been my home. I've been alone and I've been happy. And then you came along. And more will follow you. And then there will be big cities and noise and all the things I ran away from. Please believe me, Mr. Tiaba. We're going to leave as soon as our spaceship is repaired. And I'm sure this planet is big enough for all of us until that time. Well, yes, I guess it is. Uh, I'll just gather my belongings and move to the other side of the planet. Then we won't be in each other's way. Well, first you've got to help Dr. Smith. Is there an antidote that will neutralize the liquid explosive he drank? Yes, there is. Tiabo cheerfully hands the boy a bottle of horse pills, adding that four or five of them should neutralize the explosive. With all forgotten and forgiven, Will thanks the alien, then races back to help Dr. Smith before he blows himself up. Wow, that scene certainly tied up a lot of loose ends, Kurt. But one thing that wasn't explained was why the aliens suddenly needed glasses. 
Well, actually, Tiabo wasn't supposed to appear wearing eyeglasses on screen. But according to Mark Cushman's Lost in Space book, that was a blooper that slipped by because everyone was so used to seeing Wally Cox wearing his signature glasses on set, no one noticed when he accidentally left them on for that last scene. Which is pretty funny, actually. <laughs> well, I actually liked the inclusion of those glasses. I thought it was a shout-out to Mr. Peepers. Mm. But it's even funnier knowing it was not intentional. A lot of the best humor in Lost in Space fits into that category of yeah. unintentional. You know, Diablo has a lot in common with Smith, if you think about it. Let's not forget mm. that he also schemed to kill everyone on board the Jupiter 2 when that bomb went off. So Diablo... He certainly has issues, but on the other hand, he also has a point. The Earthlings did not come alone. They also brought with them a hyperatomic bomb. <laughs> mm. So we can understand Teablo's motivation for self-defense, but the scene just sort of abruptly ends, and we never see from this guy again, and that's kind of frustrating, you know? Mm. Yeah, that happens a lot on Lost in Space, doesn't it? I guess like the, yeah. the mutant back on Preplanus. Forgotten and forgiven. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, by the way, I did like Cox's old-fashioned black-rimmed spectacles. Those look just like the standard issue ones the government used to give out for years back when I was in the Air Force. And to this day, I still use the nickname we called them back then, BCGs, birth control glasses. <laughs> I'm sure you could figure out why. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, man. Classic. Uh. Well, with this story nearing a conclusion, we return to the quarantine clearing where Dr. Smith rests on a makeshift lounge chair made from boulders and using a silver bedroll as a pillow. It looks very uncomfortable, but Dr. Dynamite must be exhausted because he's sleeping quite soundly as the robot enters the area with a large red detonator box. Hmm. Working quietly, B-9 attaches one of the detonator's wires to the doctor's foot, which finally rouses Sleepy Smith from his slumber. No, it's you. I thought it might be William. The boy has not returned. That more than ample time has elapsed in which he could have accomplished his mission. Perhaps he was delayed. You should not have sent him to the aliens. It involved too great a risk. You wouldn't understand, you arrogant automatron. But the highest tribute one human can pay to another is the sacrifice of personal safety. I am glad you said that, Dr. Smith. As usual, you have no idea what you're talking about. I'm exhausted. Go away and let me sleep. The time has come for you also to make a sacrifice. B-9 then clips the other lead to Dr. Smith's belt buckle, which attracts the drowsy doctor's ire. Would you kindly explain what you're doing? In good time. Lie down, please. Well, whatever it is, get on with it. I can't lie here all night. I'll be ready in a moment. Backing away from Smith, B-9 returns to the detonator. That's an exciting bit of news. Oh, dear. I do wish Will hurries back with that neutralizer. After all, it's not easy to lie here, filled with an explosive liquid. Noticing that the robot has his claws in a strange piece of equipment, Smith grumbles... Now, what are you doing? For the good of all involved, I am going to detonate you, Dr. Smith. Closing his eyes, Smith answers absentmindedly. Lovely. Thank you very much. Goodbye. But then, it hits Smith like a ton of bricks. 
You're going to blow me up? It must be done for the good of all concerned. Can't stop that this minute, you hear? Will somebody help me? Help me? Somebody? It must be done. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! I got a neutralizer! Thankfully, just then, Will races into the clearing with the antidote. And despite protesting the pill's horrible taste, Dr. Smith forces down a couple, then glares at B9. I hope you're satisfied. There is only one way to be sure you are defused. Confused at first, Dr. Smith and Will stand frozen next to each other watching as the robot arms the device by slowly retracting the detonator. By the time Smith realizes what's happening, all he can do is before B9 mercilessly forces the plunger down with his claw. Thankfully, instead of a blast of high explosives, there's only a harmless animated electrical discharge on Smith's belt buckle. I was thankful too, Kurt, because when B9 decided to make that test, Will was standing right next to Dr. Smith. That seemed awfully reckless. Yeah, yeah, but see, that was their obvious red flag that the audience really had nothing to be scared about. That and the fact that it was a color episode. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the pain. (laughs) Well, the boys uncover their eyes and ears in relief, and Dr. Smith joyously exclaims, I didn't explode. I'm still in one piece. The neutralizer worked, Dr. Smith. I'm very happy. Oh, thank you, my dear, dear friend. Thank you. But then, realizing how close he came to oblivion, Smith stops and recoils. Stay away from me, you fiend in tent clothing, you assassin. But I was only acting for the good of all. We are friends now. Friends, indeed. I shall never have anything to do with you again, as long as I live. You are overwrought, Dr. Smith. I will fix you something to drink which will calm you down. You'd poison me, you mechanical murderer. I'll never forgive you for this. Never, never. Smith starts to leave, but is snagged by the line attached to his belt. Spinning around with a look of disdain, he yanks off the wire, then clips it to B9's ear sensor. But before storming off, he warns. Just you wait. With Smith gone, Will turns to his cybernetic sidekick and asks, You wouldn't really have detonated him, would you? How could you think I would have? I have a great affection for Dr. Smith. He is my mentor, as well as a great, decent human being, and a credit to our expedition. Then why are you still carrying the detonator? Oh, am I? The tale closes as we get another all's well that ends well happy ending. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your thoughts on Forbidden World. Well, what can I say? I I have to plead guilty to actually enjoying this guilty pleasure. Yes, I hate the fact that it's another goofball spin on what used to be a semi-serious science fiction show. Mm. Yes, I'm frustrated that you can't even get a decent-looking monster anymore, or that the guest star is literally a cartoon character. This entire color season is beginning to resemble a cartoon more than anything else. But it's a good cartoon, and I'm enjoying watching it. So I wish they were more like Johnny Quest, though, rather than the Jetsons. 
But the Jetsons is still a good cartoon worth watching, and Lost in Space still has classic moments of greatness. This entire first half of the episode, for example, was an A1 suspense thriller. Mm -hmm. It only got derailed after we see the full monster costume and realize Wally Cox is supposed to be a threat. It's Abbott and Costello meets Dracula from there on out. Only Dracula's fangs have been replaced with a ridiculous bird beak. Still, (laughs) Abbott and Costello and a toothless vampire are entertaining. And so is Wally Cox. So once I realized that the thrills were being replaced with laughs, I slowly became acclimated to the new reality and enjoyed it. But there's still some resentment and the natural urge to play the it coulda, woulda, shoulda. Even better if they had done this or that game while it played. What do you think? Well, I'm really enjoying the podcast about Forbidden World. (laughs) 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 No, I I did like it. Not as much as the last three episodes, but I guess for me, it was like I said before, it seemed like just a weird schizophrenic episode. Still, I'll give it its due. There were some parts I really liked. I thought Guy Williams did some really good acting, especially in those scenes where he was dressing down Smith at the beginning of Act Two. That was fun. And there were some nice special effect shots, too. But in addition to the split personality issue this episode had, even in the first half, there were more of those simple logic problems we've seen before, like when they repeatedly opened both hatches of the airlock, which seemed more like sloppy directing than bad writing to me, but I'm no expert. Well, you know, if I could be politely rude and point out that the airlock bit, it was bad continuity. And I made fun of it because it was funny, but I don't think it was actually bad direction. I think it was a conscious decision to cheat on the science the same way they do when they add like rocket sounds in space. It just plays better because it's more faster and less boring. And if we had to wait while that airlock opened and closed twice every time, it would have slowed things down, which is especially hurtful for the comedy bits where timing is everything. So the director probably said, or Erwin Allen probably said, screw it, no one will notice. This is wasting too much film. And they're right, time is money. So it was actually good directing for the average viewer, just not for us sci-fi nerds. That's what oh, I think. okay. Okay. Well, looking at it that way, I can accept that because like you say, those mm. those comedy bits forcing the robot and Smith out of the ship, they, they wouldn't have worked without having yeah. both hatches open at the same time. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. You can't toss them out if you got an airlock blocking this way. Okay. Yeah. Well, I feel better. Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I guess in summary, if it sounded like I was dogging on this one a little bit too much, let me in on a positive note, sir. Overall, despite its problems, I was entertained by Forbidden World. And slowly, but surely, we're getting more accustomed to what Season 2 is all about. Before we finish, let's talk about the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. Some days later, Dr. Smith, Will, Penny, and the robot are prospecting for a supply of cobalt magnesium required for the ship's food purifier. Suddenly, Smith appears overcome with pain, causing Penny to ask if he's all right. I'm afraid it's the old trouble, my dear. My eyes. It's what comes of not listening to one's doctor, I suppose. For years he warned me to avoid overworking. Try to suppress your desire for continuous endeavor, he always told me, especially at midday. Feeling sorry for the doctor, the children leave Smith behind to rest and recover next to a nearby rock. After settling in for a well-deserved nap, an ominous shadow passes over the doctor, 
followed shortly by a hideous claw, covered in white fur, that comes to rest on his shoulder. Oh, the pain! Thinking it's the robot, an irritated Smith orders the silly goose away. But when he reaches up to brush off the robot's unwelcome claw, he realizes that B-9 has no hair. Opening his eyes, Dr. Smith screams in terror at the sight of a giant, ape-like monster covered in snow-white hair. Oh, dear. But before we can find out what happens next, the freeze frame slides in to remind us that this story is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. Kurt, I don't know what would be scarier, being confronted by a real-life Yeti or discovering it was actually one of those weirdo Furbies I'm so obsessed with. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, thinking about Furbies during the same episode as the furry duck man on the S&M leash, it's just a little too frightening even for me. So I'm going to try to erase that image from my memory banks, if you don't mind. (laughs) No problem. Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing episode 34 of Lost in Space, titled Space Circus. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.